0: The Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is brought to you by Wing Chun Illustrated magazine. Wing Chun Illustrated is the premier publication for Wing Chun. Published six times a year, Wing Chun Illustrated is a perfect bound, full color, glossy publication. Each 60-page issue comes packed with in-depth content and feature stories by and about the world's greatest exponents of Wing Chun, regardless of lineage or style. Wing Chun Illustrated has featured people like Imin Bostepe, Philip Bayer, Yip Chun, Gary Lam, Donald Mack, Samuel Kwok, David Peterson, Chan Chi Man, Mark Phillips, Wan Kam Leung, Sam Lau, Robert Chu, Sifu Sergio, Victor Ken, and many, many more. There are two ways you can enjoy this fantastic publication go to wingchunillustrated.com and order the magazine as a print on demand. The print quality is simply amazing. Or download the Magster app and get a subscription. That's Magster, M-A-G-Z-T-E-R. This way, when the new issue hits the stands, you'll automatically receive it as a download onto your smart device for offline reading. In fact, with your new Magster account, you can access the magazine on multiple devices. iOS, Android, Kindle Fire, and web browser. To make the deal even sweeter, listeners of the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast can use the coupon code DUDES to get a six-month complimentary digital subscription. That coupon code is dudes typed in all capital letters. Go to Magster again, M A G Z T E R, to register. Add the six month subscription to the cart and apply the coupon code at checkout. The Dudes of Kung Fu Love Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Hey
1: everybody, we are back. Sorry about the long delay, but uh, I will fill you in on what happened over the next couple of podcasts. Um, it's it's so great to be back, and we are so happy that uh, you folks are here to enjoy it with us. So sit back and uh, enjoy the Dudes of Kung Fu.
0: Dudes of Kung Fu. Please welcome your hosts, Alex
1: Richter and Big Sean Madigan.
0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the 50th episode of Dudes in Kung Fu. How are you, Alex? Wow, it's pretty amazing. We made it to 50 episodes, man. Who would have thunk it? I'm telling
1: you, I didn't think I was going to get through the first 50 minutes with you, (laughs) let alone the first 50 episodes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, you know, it was kind of funny... um, I'm sure that we've discussed it on uh, previous shows, but you know, it, it kind of came about pretty organically. The whole idea of doing the podcast, it was, it was basically your idea, right? Because your son had been doing some stuff with podcasting, and then you suggested it. And then, um, do you do you, do you remember? Like, I mean, um, what what gave you the idea to approach me to do the podcast? Well,
1: I just I want to – you know. I was a top looking for a bottom, you know. It was just, uh,
0: <laughs> the truth comes um, out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, you know, it was just, um, I, I my son Johnny, who's into podcasting, has been nudging me to do a martial arts podcast for a long time. He's like, oh, dad, you're funny. It'll, you know, it'll be really good. And I was trying to think, who can I do it with that would take it serious but would have a good time? Right. And you know what? And like you, were the fifth person that popped in, that said yes. And
0: <laughs> after, you no, call, so you, after you called the other four and they didn't I respond. I called the other four and they didn't
1: respond. They don't answer my phone calls. And, and you answered the phone. Yes, I'll do it. Whatever it is, I'll do it. Because <laughs> so. that's how I answer any
0: of your requests, right?
1: <laughs> right. So, I, you know, so I remember, you know, I sent you a text or whatever, on Facebook something. And said, hey, dude, do you want to do a martial arts podcast? You're like, yeah, man, let's call. I'll come over Saturday. We'll do it. Right. Like, It was like you were like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And, um, I'm, and I'm really happy we did that. Like, we took that first step, you know?
0: Yeah, 50,000 downloads is pretty amazing when you consider that uh, this is just basically just us kind of sitting and chatting the way we normally would and that people have – I mean, think about 50,000 times people have downloaded just to listen to us do what we would do anyway if we were just hanging out, right?
1: Right. I mean, it's impressive for, you know, just two guys from New York to get. We have 50,000 downloads in 49 episodes, which just, this is the 50th episode. And, you know, I just think it's so freaking awesome. And, and the support from from the fans has been awesome. I know it's weird to say fans, but listeners, whatever you want to call it, it's uh it's been really freaking awesome it's people are just really into this podcast
0: yeah yeah well i'm uh, luckily i think we don't have a whole lot of competition in terms of like we we definitely figured out like uh, okay this is the one podcast market where it's definitely a bit underserved because uh podcasting obviously is a phenomenon is really huge And there are not that many martial arts specific podcasts. I remember before we decided to do ours, I I took a look around just to see what else was out there. There were maybe just a few like traditional martial art podcasts, maybe like more like karate based or something like that. And then there's like one or two two that do, like, um, martial art films, but, like, the discussion specifically of Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do, um, there's not that much, and um, the there is that Bruce Lee podcast, like, the, the official one, but um, I, I don't think their focus is quite the same as the way we do it, you know? It's like, we, we kind of, like, we're the guys who grew up with this stuff, we do this stuff, and we're talking right. about it kind of from, um, I guess an unpolished perspective, you know, and and I think the Bruce Lee podcast is is a bit like um, a bit more on the kind of the corporate representation of the entity of Bruce Lee as uh, as the family wants to show it in 2018. And we're just like dudes who are into this talking about it. So I think that that's our advantage. Um, And, you know, I I think we're basically filling a market that that has been underserved.
1: No, I I think. You know, people that listen to the podcast are more like us than they're like a lot of other people. You know, there's guys that are super passionate. Like We're both super passionate, but in different ways. For me, it's a hobby that, you know, I it's, it's, a, it's a powerful hobby to me, but it's a hobby. And for you, it's a complete lifestyle, business. And hobby, it's like it's your passion and your and your livelihood. I think so. We have we between the two of us, we run a whole spectrum. You know, I mean, in, in every way. I mean, I good looking, ugly. We have um, you know, in shape, fat. We have we run this whole spectrum of every different scale possible.
0: We are we are the perfect representation of yin and yang. <laughs> <laughs>
1: to the point where you have a black shirt on and I have a white one on. Yes,
0: yes, pretty typical, pretty typical. Um, yeah, I, I think that also, you know, we, I, not to kind of like beat a dead horse, but I think an- another reason I think why people like the podcast is that martial arts in general, uh, when they're discussed, there's always a bit of a holier than thou kind of attitude by the people who discuss it. You know, it's like, right. I am a martial artist and, you know, I'm, I'm above discussing certain things. And, and, um, and I find that, While certainly martial arts um, can make people more disciplined and you have to be disciplined to uh, follow the martial path and run a business and teach other people, um, I always feel that there tends to be a little bit of humanity that's lost by certain people because they seem to want to fit the stereotype of somebody who is unapproachable and, (laughs) and, and not you know, they're almost like too cool for school. And I think that that also makes it difficult for other people in our industry to even do what we do because we, we don't have that pretense when we discuss.
1: Right, right. true. I think you're being a little hard on yourself. You're not so pretentious that you're not, you're just pretentious. And, oh, you weren't talking about you, were you? <laughs> 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 well, listen, I want to, before, before I forget, it's important to me, I want to give a shout out to, uh, to one of the listeners. He's a... Uh, Big time listener to the podcast. He's a supporter of us through the uh, Patreon. Uh, his name is Francis cordon I'm sure I said your name wrong, Francis, but he's in uh, he's in Spain. He's an awesome freaking person. He's an awesome guitar player, and he does Wing Chun, and he loves the podcast. And he just he he actually put a YouTube video up thanking us for this podcast. And there's you know there's been there's we have awesome fans that are writing all the time. There's been a few guys that have gone, like, above and beyond. You know, Topher. Topher's huge. Uh, Anthony, Anthony Iglesias, he's another one that's, like, he's always pushing out podcasts to, for people to listen to. And, you know, I just I want to thank them. I, you know, I don't forget about you guys. It's like, you know, it's like when I sit there and I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to talk to Alex now. I'm like, no, no, I'm doing this for these guys. not... <laughs>
0: It makes it all worthwhile, right? Is what it makes say. it all worthwhile. It's true, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. no, it's great. I mean, the, the support that we get, and it, it's also funny for me because it's gotten to the point now where students are joining my school because they heard the podcast. Like, they'll walk That's in, awesome. and they'll, they'll look at me, and they'll be like... I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I'll be and, and my response, my my first response is always, "Really? <laughs> like, like it's kind of very neat, niche, and geek, you know." So it's like, "Wow, that's great." Well, you're definitely at the right place if that's your thing, you know. That actually
1: happened to me at um, recently a few months ago. I went to the Steve Golden seminar in uh, up in Fushkill, New York, and um, it was so cool. I mean, first of all, just seeing so many old and new friends. But uh, I walked in, and and a young man who I'd never met before, and didn't know, didn't know who he was. He just walks up to me, and his exact quote was, "Holy shit, you're one of the dudes of Kung Fu."
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, it was, you know, it was pretty. It was, it was fun. You know, I'm not gonna lie, it was fun. You know, it was." Uh, and, like, he knew, like, oh, he was quoting a fucking show and everything. Yeah.
0: That, that's, you know? that's always the weird thing when you have people who come up to you and they're like, you know, on season three, episode four, you mentioned this story about this one thing. And I just look at them and I go, like, wait, what? <laughs> it, it, it reminds me of uh, William Shatner in Star Trek because he has that thing whenever he does, like, some kind of convention oh, sure. where people will be like, well, you know, in season three, episode six of Star Trek, where you are on the, like, there's clearly was a mistake in continuity about, and he'll just look at them, he'll have no idea what they're talking about, because I think that uh, for the fans who are on the kind of receiving, like, the receiving end of the the content, it's a totally different experience for us than it is for us, because we just get up here and we just start talking. So we, right. we don't it, – it's not like this is scripted and then we have a story arc. We don't know like – it's not like, oh, we're in the fifth season of The Walking Dead and we have an idea of what's going to happen next season. It's like we, we don't know and it, it, it just and, – and as easily as the ideas come to us, they also just leave. I mean I um, find myself sometimes listening to old podcasts and going like, oh, right, I forgot we talked about that. Or, oh, I forgot we totally did this thing or whatever. And it's kind of nice because uh, I can always revisit those things and they still feel fresh because it is unscripted. So, um, yeah, so anyway, it's, it's just kind of interesting observation uh, when our fans think that we know more about our show than we actually do. <laughs> yeah, we, we really don't. <laughs>
1: um, one thing I want to talk about tonight real quick was, uh, and I know some people don't like when we talk about this, but... Uh, I want to talk about um, Conor McGregor and the UFC a little bit.
0: Oh, I'm tuning so, out already, man. Are you talking about MMA? Forget it. Mama? I, I thought this was about <laughs> Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do, man. I well, don't want to well, hear about the mama. What? You know, the mama.
1: Con- Conor McGregor trains at Straight Blast Gyms. Straight Blast Gym was created by Matt Thornton, whose first certification was in Jeet Kune Do. So there is a connection. There you go. And that's where that's. Where. And besides, I'm. Dorky for Conor McGregor, so that's it.
0: Yeah, I know. You fanboy about him a little bit too much.
1: <laughs> yeah, I fanboy about him. you got to fuck a poster from hanging by on your head, but I fanboy
0: about <laughs> him. I hear they're going to strip him of his title. Well, yeah, but, but Dana White is kind of too chicken shit to actually say that he's going to do that. Um, right. And uh, Eddie Alvarez, um, whom Conor beat to get the title, actually had a very interesting observation about that, so... Uh, for, for people who don't know, so Conor McGregor won the lightweight title. Uh, he beat Eddie Alvarez in Madison Square Garden. This is all already back at the end of 2016. And uh, after that fight, uh, he very shortly held two titles. He had the uh, featherweight, the 145-pound title, which he got from knocking out uh, Jose Aldo. And then he just got the uh, lightweight title for uh, knocking out um, Eddie Alvarez. So he was... I think the 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 first two time uh, simultaneous champ at the UFC. I know Randy Couture, a couple other people have had um, championship belts in two different weight classes, but Conor was the first one to hold them simultaneously. So that was his uh, that was his kind of like big crowning achievement. And then of course, like two weeks later, they stripped them of his featherweight title and. Um, and, and then so he only became a, you know, a one one division champion or whatever. Right. But they let him have it for like two weeks or something like that. Right. So now Connor has been the lightweight, the undisputed lightweight champ for uh, over a year. And as we all know, in 2017, the only fight that he had was the big money fight um, versus Mayweather. And so he's essentially been inactive as a lightweight. So uh, they have an interim. So Tony Ferguson is the interim lightweight champion in UFC. And he's going to fight Khabib Nurmagomedov. And the idea was that they're going to say it's for the undisputed lightweight championship of UFC, which kind of means that they uh, have stripped Conor of his title because it would just still be the interim title if Conor is still the undisputed champion. The problem is that Dana White doesn't want to say that he uh, is stripping Conor. And Eddie Alvarez had a very interesting observation about that. And he says it might be because Khabib has a history of pulling out, you know, either due to weight cutting issues or injury. And um, this fight between Tony Ferguson and Khabib, they've tried to do it three times already and it's failed. So mm. maybe the reason why they're saying it's for the undisputed, but they're not officially stripping Connor of the title, is just in case one of these guys pulls out, they're not lacking a 155 pound champ. So that's what I heard.
1: Yeah, well, you know, that's that sounds so correct. It's scary.
0: <laughs> did <laughs> Since... I did I just steal all your mojo with that? No, <laughs> no, I really
1: I didn't know the story behind the story. Right. Uh, you know, I go by you know my son telling me stuff, and I read tweets here and there. But um, you guys are definitely into the wheeling uh, and dealing of the UFC much more than I am. I mean, I just you know I, I I'm a fanboy when it comes to Conor and some other some of the other fighters and. Um, I, I, you know, uh, but I, I to, you know, I totally get the UFC having to do this though. If they strip him, right. I mean, he's got to defend. I don't believe. I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think he's ever defended a title.
0: No, he hasn't defended a single title. <laughs>
1: it's like, come on, man, that's not fair to the other fighters. And when we talk about the other fighters, and it's not fair to them, I'm not even talking about the honor of holding a belt. Talk about the fucking money. Right. You know, there's money involved with being the champion. And if you don't have the shot. Of being a champion because Conor's not stepping up—that's money out of their pockets, right. and that's not cool. Yeah, Conor made a hundred million dollars or so from that uh, boxing match, and that's all awesome and good for you, Conor. Then step aside, you know. Like, be a man. In, and again, I love Conor McGregor, but he's gotta—he's gotta make let other guys make their money. Right. You know, it's like if you have a guy who's, you know, hitting thirty in a couple of years and. And he needs to make his mark now. He needs to make his mark now. And maybe he can't wait on you, you know, deciding whether you want to fight or not. It's just not fair to these guys and their money.
0: Right. Well, yeah, they I mean, have the, families to support. I mean, that's why they have the interim belts and things like that. I mean, yeah, from, but, you know, that's not the same. Yeah. But from Connor's perspective, I mean, when you get 100 million for just, you know, going in a boxing ring with Floyd, you, you're really less incentivized to go in there and have to face somebody who's going to try to, you know, smack your head with a shin and <laughs> choke you on the ground. Uh, Like, I I also understand from Connor's perspective. By the way, did you see that weird footage of Floyd Mayweather going in the octagon? (laughs) Like, what was up with that? I think that was
1: a commercial for something. I think it was something weird. Because, I mean, come on, if Floyd Mayweather is going to go, you know, try and make an MMA career, it's... That would be ridiculous. I mean, come on. Right, right. There's no way he'd be dead in under two minutes. Yeah, especially like...
0: at this this stage in 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 his life. I mean, he's already past forty, and you know, for all those like boxing purists that were like, you know, no way Connor's gonna like be able to like even handle Floyd Mayweather for a little bit. It's like, well, first of all, say what you will about that fight, but uh connor connor stayed in there for quite a bit connor boxed very well for the first few rounds and like we discussed before the kind of the bullshit scoring of boxing was a little bit strange in those early rounds but here's the thing connor is not a world class boxer and he went in there literally with the best and did better than many people who just went against Floyd Mayweather who were boxers, right? Right. right. So you have to say that right. and, and all the and, and the boxing guys are so protective of that that when that came out it was like and Connor lost, it was like, see, of course I knew it. It's like, yeah, but Floyd has zero chance in MMA. There is zero chance that even against uh, somebody that's not even ranked in UFC. Let's not. Let, let's say um, Floyd were to fight. What's his weight class? Like one forty-five or something like that, or one fifty, right. right? Let's say you put him in featherweight in the UFC against an unranked opponent, somebody who is like beyond number fifteen. All right, there is no way that uh, Floyd Mayweather could go three rounds with oh, a, like and 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 make it to that third round all the way through and even lose a decision to somebody who's even just a journeyman low level ufc like like that would never happen whereas not just connor but you could conceive a number of mma fighters could go the distance or go a number of rounds with some of the best boxers out there they might not be able to win but they could kind of hang in that person's sport like um uh, who's that? Roy Jones Jr. wants to fight Anderson Silva in a boxing match. Did you hear about that?
1: I didn't know about that. No. Yeah.
0: Now, see, I don't. I would assume that Roy Jones would probably beat him in a in a boxing match, but right. I could also imagine Anderson Silva could go the distance with him in a boxing ring, whereas mm-hmm. no boxer can go the distance with any MMA fighter at any level for even three rounds. So right. totally, it's agree. Completely totally agree. Totally different, right? Well, I mean, can you picture? I can't picture a boxer
1: even hanging with a collegiate wrestler. You exactly. know what I mean? Because it's just a, it's just a game they're not familiar with. It's just a game they're not familiar with.
0: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So a a nice little topic for our fiftieth podcast, and it kind of applies to both G Kune Do, and um, and Wing Chun. But I kind of feel like. And we've touched, about the, we've touched upon this on the podcast numerous times, but I think it'll be a good topic for us tonight. Wing Chun and Ji Kendo, this reliance on Chi Sao as if it was sparring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all you see is Chi Right. It's all you see is Chi Now, again, I don't know how much sparring you guys do in your school. That's, you know, you're, you're a brilliant instructor, and I'm sure you have a formula down. But, like, I just can't picture, I mean, I love Chi Sao. I'm not knocking Chi Sao. And I think Chi Sao is a great teaching tool. But it's not sparring. And I think if, if Wing Chun people and Ji Kune do people are going to become better fighters, we need, we need to emphasize the uh, lessons learned from Chi Sao in a sparring match. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you progress your students into going from Chi Sao, into sparring is that is cheese part of the progression into sparring or is it do you like how do you how do you do that
0: well these things are, are, are run kind of parallel to each other um, it's interesting that you said that because I, I just got back from Hong Kong last week and uh, as always you know I, I stop by and uh, you know say hi to my Wing Chun family and I occasionally also visit uh, Wing Chun people you know from the greater Yip Man Wing Chun family that are not like specifically from my line and the just like you said, the the extreme emphasis on chi sao in Wing Chun schools is um, even more apparent in Hong Kong. So you know, you know, many Hong Kong schools, regardless of lineage, they might start the class with uh, with the form, and then what you're doing is for the rest of the two hour class, it's just chi sao. and even then, it's not structured in any kind of way like where you're dealing with certain types of movements and you're trying to improve certain angles or certain attributes, it's like, okay, they just go at it in a very disorganized and 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 not very um, uh, progressive kind of manner. So what ends up happening when that type of training just becomes, so the the first problem is if they're just doing qi So, obviously they're not dealing with Punches coming at them from distance, kicks coming at them from distance. The kind of the the, the way a fight would actually begin. You, you're you're already starting, assuming that you have contact with someone's arms, who are relatively central. Well, what if the person is going for wild swings? Um, that's going to change the contact point. That's going to change the way you interact. What happens if the guy just stays at distance and doesn't want to engage you at all? How do you deal with that kind of scenario, right? And Wing Chun has. Brilliant solutions for all of these scenarios, but chi being perhaps the most fun of all the training methods because it's live and people like it. It gets the safest. It's the safest. It gets way too much uh, training floor time at the expense of other things that are really important, and quite frankly, at the expense of other things that Wing Chun also does brilliantly. But it just gets kind of. Oh, it, I love that. It, it, it just gets kind of overshadowed by this preponderance of chi sao So um, the, the issue we have is that where Wing Chun comes from, mainly Hong Kong, I mean, I know Wing Chun originally comes from China, but Wing Chun really developed in Hong Kong. It, it is a very qi-sao based type way of training. And everything is okay if you want to test your skills, you have to, you, you know, you're gonna test each other in chi sao and you're gonna see who is better in chi sao And it's all based on that kind of idea. And so that, in my opinion, is a bit problematic because it's it's reductionist. It reduces Wing Chun to nothing but a chi-sao interaction with somebody else. So, um, and that's by the way not how I do it. But your observation is 100% correct, and it's also problematic because that's what people see when they go to Hong Kong.
1: Right. See, I, I find in Gikendo schools, a lot of times they break Wing Chun. They break. I'm sorry. They break chi-sao. And, and they look at it as if it's an, uh, an advancement of Sao and it's really a destruction of Sao. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by this is I've gone to Gikindo schools uh, you know friends of mine and stuff and they'll they'll say, okay we're gonna cheese and they put on headgear mouthpiece, MMA gloves and just rock' em, sock them robot each other in the face right And they're like, oh yeah well we do combative Sao. And I'm like, I don't know i for me there's no attraction there right because to me if you're going to do qi sao you should be doing qi sao with a purpose yes you know if when i do qi sao i always have a purpose in mind you know and the purpose is not always to punch my training partner in the face it's almost never to punch my training partner in the face or just to, to prevent getting punched in the face it's often for me and what i do because because of my size and my lack of mobility i'm always Thinking and working ways of changing an angle to open center. That's always my thing. I always have this thing about shifting. And I'm always working that in Chi saw. That's it's kind of like my thing. And whenever I go into Chi saw, I always have a purpose. I always have something in my head. Let's see if I can work this. And I may analyze it later and say, oh, wow, this worked against me. That worked against me. I have to work on those the, those ideas. But I always kind of have something in my head of what I want to work against. And if you're going to get up and just put on, you know, sparring gear and punch the shit out of each other, you're not making Chi-Sao better. You're making Chi-Sao worse. Right. Because you're taking away the training tool and you're doing a bad version of sparring. Right. And I I, I do feel like a lot of people fall into this trap. And and I don't know why. I don't know. As a matter of fact, I guess it's not important why. It's just, it's something that's... It's got to stop in our martial arts because it's 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 one it doesn't look good. I mean, other martial arts look at it and say, "What the fuck is that?" Exactly. And and it's and it's I think it's works against the progress of the student. Right. You know what I mean? And it gets to the point where chi sao in your school is just two guys or two girls beating the shit out of each other, now you're gonna have people that are maybe are a little timid when it comes to sparring, now stepping away from chi sao. Right because they're afraid of that. Yeah, you know, and I just think it's uh, it's something that needs to be fixed in uh, in Gikondo schools.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of Wing Chun schools do that, and this is always where I kind of laugh. Where you have these guys who who are self proclaimed combat freaks, and they're like, you know, we don't do traditional or classical Wing Chun. We do. Combat street Wing Chun or something like that, and then and it's the same kind of idea. It's like okay, it's the Chi Sao with the headgear and the gloves, and it's like you know punch the guy in the face, and this is as real as it gets, kind of thing. And what I often see there is um, uh, a misinterpretation of Wing Chun's tactics applied generally. So Chi Sao in general is an is an exercise that is meant to Teach you certain things about positions, certain mm-hmm. things about interaction, and also how to essentially um, s- smother and stick to incoming attacks and to position yourself safely away from incoming attacks at close range. The problem is that Qisao has a couple limitations, all right? First of all, it's limited because of the, the, da- the, the range, it can be problematic. Because uh, if you just go and straight up pop someone in the nose at that range, there you have a broken nose and the fight is over. Um, If the guy comes really close, you clip him with an elbow, boom, you knock them out, the the, the, the chisao is over, right? So you have to be able to train and develop these skills within the context of – At any moment, I could just break your nose and give you an elbow strike to your head, and that would kind of negate everything we're doing right now, but we're going to do everything kind of short of that. So there has to be an understanding between the two partners that there's going to be controlled force. But the moment one person decides, no, I'm going to like screw Wing Chun concept, I'm just going to punch with my elbow out, go over your guard and try to hit you in the face, and then the other person tries to defend with their elbows in and ends up getting cracked... This is not a failure of Wing Chun. This is a failure of the, the student's ability to apply Wing Chun in all situations. So, Chi Sao, there has to be a certain agreement in terms of what you're going to do. It's the same thing like in Jiu Jitsu rolling. If you're rolling in a BJJ class, right? At the end, you're rolling, you, you, you know, you, you slap hands with the guy, you go in and roll. And suddenly, if the guy needs you in the groin in the middle of rolling, you'd be like, yo, what's going on? or if the guy like pressed his knee on your face but actually landed with a little bit of power and tried to hurt you, or somebody just straight up punched you while you were doing BJJ rolling, you'd be like, dude, what's going on? I thought we were rolling, right? See, Wing Chun doesn't really have that same type of agreement like they do in BJJ rolling where they can go, we're just gonna roll and do jujitsu hard. Wing Chun people can't just say we're just going to roll and do Wing Chun hard. It's no, if I hit you a little bit, the other person doesn't care if they follow a proper Wing Chun punching protocol. They're just going to go over, try to hit you because now it becomes a thing about winning. Well, right, it's ego. In, in a Wing Chun context, the moment your partner resorts to climbing around your arm or doing something, let's say, non Wing Chun, which, by the way, kiddies, Wing Chun is designed to fight against non-wing Chun, so in Chi Sao or in fighting, if somebody does something non-wing Chun and they hit you, you can't blame the other guy for using non-wing Chun and it still hits you. You have to realize how absurd that argument is. It's like, wait a minute, you're supposed to hit me with a low elbow so I can do Bong Sao, right? No. <laughs> if, two, if two practitioners are practicing wing Chun against each other, yes. They should be doing it with certain type of technical skill or whatever, but we also have Lut self and, and Freestyle Chi also, sao, in which one partner can also adopt the movements and techniques of another style so that you can uh, seamlessly blend your Wing Chun versus Wing Chun skills with your Wing Chun versus foreign martial arts skills. Right. And Wing Chun has solutions for, OK, if we're doing Pun sao and suddenly you go for like a wild hook, something very non atypical in Wing Chun. If, if you hit me with a wild hook in the middle of Poon Cell, I, I could say, well, hey, we're trying to do a, just Wing Chun versus Wing Chun. It might be you making a mistake of the exercise. But if we're doing free QC and you go and give me a hook from Poon Cell, it's my job to defend that thing and not tell you that you're wrong because you used a non-Wing Chun attack. So Wing Chun has the technology to immediately stick and nullify these non-Wing Chun attacks that can happen from... Chi uh, Sao or Pun Sao per se. And we also have a tactic that very few people know about because it's embedded in the wooden dummy techniques and it's called a clinch. We have the neck pull in Wing Chun. So when you, when you, if I'm doing Chi Sao with somebody and they are beyond my ability to control them with my sticking skills, they're wild, they're fast or whatever, I use my gum cell and pull them into a neck pull and control them you know you can't just stand in front of somebody who is trying to punch you and trying to knock you out and just try to trade punches with them if you cannot control their punches you need to clinch them and Wing Chun has very straightforward very simple clinching techniques that people don't know about and they don't resort to Therefore, they just have this rock sokum thing because they are not only training Wing Chun badly, but they're also not using all of the potential that Wing Chun has in terms of its arsenal. So you're seeing a, 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 a misrepresentation of Wing Chun in which it's not only being trained poorly, but also a small percentage of its potential is being used, in my opinion.
1: I agree 100%. And, and, and just to take it one step further, like I said, it not only does that, it it actually it doesn't just stop in some cases stop the progress of the student. It could set the student back. Right. If they're if they're you know that's that's what concerns me is that it doesn't you know it doesn't slow not that it just slows the, pro, the the progression of learning for a student not that it stops the progression of learning for a student is that you have the very real possibility of setting a student back inability to that harming their ability to learn right because you know if you take someone especially someone who doesn't want to get hit someone that's concerned about that you know and you and, and you teach them cheese out and next thing you know it's sparring it it, it loses something for them and that it becomes for them one more thing to fear right you know maybe they're afraid of it gets to the point where maybe they're a little concerned or People don't admit it, but it's the truth. People are a little afraid of sparring, but they may not be afraid of Chi Sao. And if Chi Sao becomes a fight, then they become afraid of Chi Sao. And that's one more jewel that they're going to shy away from. Right. You know, and um, I just think, like, you know, Chi Sao is so important in Wing Chun and it's not as important as people make it out to be right. at the same exact time i think it's a it's a valuable training tool that is completely overused right and it's and it's overused in um, out of fear of sparring it's overused out of some thought process that it holds some mystical abilities and it's overused as sparring and and it's 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 really hurting the, the the progression of uh, Wing Chun and G students all, all over the place.
0: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's being overused in terms of the amount of time it's it's being used right. compared to other things. But I think it's being underused in terms of it's still not being trained for what you need it for. <laughs> so right. it's it's kind of like something they spend a lot of time doing that's not helping them, but could <laughs> like so. Right, it, exactly it, it, right. Yeah, it, it's it's um a, a bit problematic and. Um, the, the way I learned it and also certainly the way I teach it is that practical application, meaning our ability to defend non-Wing Chun attacks is always done parallel to the classical Wing Chun training. So when students start learning at my school, they would learn, you know, the the, the first form and the footwork and the simultaneous techniques and Gan sao, and Tan sao, and Pak sao, and all these things. And while they're learning these classical um, exercises and uh, fundamental, uh, um, drills. They're also learning. Okay. So now let's learn to deal with a straight punch, a low punch, someone trying to tackle us, someone trying to put us in a headlock, somebody trying to throw a kick at us. Right. So, um, the, the big thing about sparring in my school is, uh, when, when we do it, it's always one person is the wing chun person and one person is the non wing chun person. So which makes perfect sense. So, um, because nothing drives me nuts, more than seeing like okay now our Wing Chun guys are gonna spar, and I go okay well we have Chi Sao sparring there's Wing Chun versus Wing Chun sparring, we also have uh, Wing Chun versus non Wing Chun style Chi Sao sparring where the one partner can mix Chi Sao but also then randomly throw non Wing Chun attacks so they're trying to Lap Sao Pak and suddenly come at you with a crushing hook nice. right so th- but that was actually something that Lang Ting made us train and. Then we also have, okay, now we're at distance. I'm, I'm the Wing Chun person. You're the non-Wing Chun person, and you're going to give me the types of attacks that would happen on the street um, or that would happen against someone who uh, – or with someone who knows something else, and then you have to be able to apply your Wing Chun against that. So when I hear Wing, people go, okay, we're going to spar in Wing Chun, and then I see two guys suited up, headgear, mama gloves – sorry, MMA – um uh you know shin pads elbows all that stuff and then they are across from each other both in the wing chun baijong position i look at that and i just go oh fuck me sideways this is going to be very stupid because i know what's about to happen there is about to be a little bit of timidity at first and then there's going to be a chain punch versus chain punch orgy of ineffective nonsense where, where distance, timing, angles, none of that shit matters. It's just I'm just going to try to overwhelm the guy. And if I can't overwhelm the guy, I'll just keep trying to overwhelm the guy with shake punches. And, and, so, and that is a very limited strategy because if you're going to face another Wing Chun person, Wing Chun versus Wing Chun on the street, if it was a real fight um, – besides the fact that I would suggest maybe using a slightly non-Wing Chun looking if I was going to fight a perfect template of me, I wouldn't necessarily go against me using Wing Chun. I would still be using Wing Chun concepts, but it might not look like Wing Chun. But certainly I would not want to do it with gloves and elbows and all that stuff on, because then most of what I'm able to do in Wing Chun goes out the window because of the equipment. And what people need to realize is, that is not necessarily going to help you understand the nature of what happens on the street. You need someone who's going to come at you with a fast jab, a fast lead punch, a low kick that's not very martial art, just, just something that just grazes your knee and tries to crack you. Oh, swing, not even necessarily a hook, but somebody just coming at you with a crushing overhead. A John Wayne your, punch. Yes. Those are the things that students need to learn to defend against. And I'm of the opinion if your students can defend straight punches – low punches, swings, sucker punches, tackles, headlocks, and basic kicks, then you've done most of your job in terms of teaching them what they need for dealing with strikes, not talking about dealing with grappling attacks, dealing with strikes, and then it's okay if you spend more time doing chi-sau because you've done your duty. Like, I don't care if my guys want to come in and do two hours of chi on a Saturday, provided I know that if I throw a straight punch at them and a hook, they can defend that too. You know, then, right. then go to town, right? And my problem is when people only do chi so they visit my school and they're like, oh, I've learned the whole Wing Chun system. I know the knives, I know the pole. <laughs> I go, okay, great. So I'm just gonna see what you do against a straight punch and I hit them in the face with a straight punch and I go, um, I think you should do the beginner class at my school, <laughs> like, right? because clearly they have mistaken doing forms and drills and playing on a pantomiming on a wooden dummy with the actual skills of Wing Chun. They've confused those things. And right, so, well,
1: that, yeah. that that says it right there, the skills of Wing Chun. I think pe- people forget that um, if the value of Wing Chun was in doing the forms, the forms wouldn't be for free on YouTube. <laughs> right. The, va- <laughs> the value, at least as I see it, in Wing Chun is found within the skill developed by performing the drills in a structurally sound way, the structure may be found in the forms, right with the, with the proper instruction from a, from a teacher. But it's in it's Wing Chun is found in the skill derived from doing the the, the, the drills, right? That's where that's where you learn your lessons. You know, my, my teacher, Tom Kagan said that, um, you know, Mo was his teacher. But he learned his way he always says, I learned my Wing Chun from my seeings, right? You know, like, cause he said, like, yeah, Moya maybe will teach something. Oh, you're doing this wrong in the form, or no, you should be standing this way. But it was, it was, it was in doing the drills with his with his uh, classmates that his skill was developed. Right. You know, and and that's where he he always says he learned his Wing Chun, and and what, that's what happens. He'll say like, oh, I learned my Wing Chun from my classmates, and people hear that and say. Oh, he didn't really learn from Moyat. He learned from his classmates. Right. And he's like, no, I learned from Moyat, But the real skill was developed in in working with the classmates. Of course. And, and, and that's where, I mean, because, again, I don't know how your school runs. But, like, the average student's not working exclusively with the seafood. I'm sure. Right. They work with their classmates. <clears throat> Maybe the seafood will walk in and say, you you being like, oh, you or the, the actual seafood of the school We'll say like you know oh you know no, your your elbows wrong here try do it this way here but now they have to work with their classmate and their classmate's gonna be going to be oh no no I'm seeing an opening here I think you're doing this wrong and and that's where your skill is developed in in, in working and I don't know I just think that uh, more credit has to be given towards a few things I'm I'm a little confused in what I was saying right so <laughs> stream of consciousness more credit. I did. I, I, I'm i old. Listen, you know, what can I say? No, what I mean is credit has to be given to the students that you learn from and, and the proper use of drills as opposed to trying to take Wing Chun drills and make them combative. Right. If you want to be combative, spar. Yes. And I love what you said. Have guys throw non-Wing Chun into Chi Sao and sparring. Right. Because now in JKD… We always joke about like, oh, you know, two JKD guys, two JKD guys are gonna spar, and you see them both line up in right lead. Right. You're not gonna see that in the street. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, you just you're not gonna see that in the street. Most people fight left lead. Yes. JKD people, most JKD people fight right lead. So now, if me and you train in Do and we're gonna spar, it changes everything. It changes the angles, the distance, the. T- right you know the strategy so you need to think ahead and and um you need to in a jkd school have one guy always in left lead
0: yeah i always thought the concept of sparring in jkd was had the same problem as sparring in wing chun Because Bruce Lee's whole idea so far as I understood it about having the right lead, you know, longest weapon, nearest target, that whole idea was predominantly designed to fight against that which what other people do. You know, it's like martial arts is always problem solving. And Bruce Lee wanted to figure out a way to solve the problems of how other people fight in a way that was efficient and concept based and smart. But the problem is then you have two people doing that kind of idea towards each other doesn't really seem to make sense. You know, because it's like, uh, same thing with Wing Chun, it's like, for example, um, Wing Chun in general, although there are different strains that look at it differently, Wing Chun is normally a counter-attacking martial art. Although, we can attack using Wing Chun, but the idea is that when somebody, you know, breaches a certain distance, or gets or launches the punch, then the Wing Chun person will counter. They may counter aggressively, but it's still a counter, it's like, uh, it's essentially a counter-fighting style, so... In theory, when two Wing Chun people face off, they would just stare at each other. <laughs> they don't feel you see what I mean? Like, like if they were actually right, no, both absolutely. following the idea, they would just—it was like it would be like two samurai warriors holding onto their swords, staring at each other for two hours, and then deciding the match is a draw, and then going home. You know what I mean? Right.
1: So, so two things. One, so JKD, you fight left lead not so much because I'm sorry, you fight right lead not so much because right lead helps beat a left lead person. Most JKD people fight right lead because most people are left-handed. Bruce Lee's uh, thought process was that your strongest arm, most coordinated arm, should be in front. If you're going to land most of your punches with your your lead hand, it should be your more coordinated, more powerful. So it was that thought process that put us into right lead. And... I forgot. Man, I'm having a bad fucking day
0: here. <laughs> <But> <laughs> what did you just say? Because I'm going to... So I was talking about um, how it, it seems a bit self-defeating to have JKD versus JKD sparring the same as Wing Chun versus Wing Chun sparring. Like, it just seems that the concepts were all originally designed to fight against other styles and not to right, fight against so, the same style.
1: Right, so JKD is a, a non a, non, a second-intention art as well. We I wouldn't say a counter... Fighters, I would say second intention, mm-hmm. and
0: what, what, the, what do you mean by second intention?
1: Meaning that in most cases, my movements are going to be derived by how you move. Got it. Not necessarily in response to how you uh-huh. move, but because of how you move. Got it. And with it being a second intention art, we have to initiate attacks differently than I throw a punch; he counterattacks. And I now counter the encounter. So, like you say, like, oh, we have two Wing Chun guys. We're both waiting for the other one to attack because we want to counterattack. Right. At least in JKD, as I was taught it, was now I have to come up with something else to force you to attack even if you don't want to. Right. And that's where the idea of our footwork comes in. Mm-hmm. At least how it's taught in Steve by Steve Golden. There's this idea of the way we use footwork, the way we use angles and move and and press the issue with our footwork this idea of creating a vacuum of people wanting to fill voids is what will give us that the the opponent's intention for me to have my second intention the, when you when you talk about like I, i've talked about non-contact wing chen uh, non-contact gsau and um i don't mean anything esoteric by it at all what i mean is the idea of pressing and retreating that you'll get sometimes in, in wing Chun, in the Chi Sao, so like if you're doing Chi Sao and you press really hard and, and, and you kind of like step back just a half a step and let this void develop, oftentimes your opponent or training partner will step in unconsciously, subconsciously, just to fill this void. They, 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 they have this idea that they want to move forward and punch you in the fucking face and they're waiting for this opportunity and you kind of give it to them. This idea of just creating this void, this vacuum, that needs to be filled. And if once you create this vacuum that needs to be filled, the opponent will step into that oftentimes if that's their way of fighting. And and that's how we use a in JKD this idea of second intention in that I will create a void, I'll create a vacuum of 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 space that needs to be filled. And it's done dynamically. It's not like, oh, I take a step back. He takes a step back. I take a step back. It's, it's, it, that's too robotic. There's this idea of a, a, a dynamics that take place. And when you change the angles and, 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 and change distances and, and change the way you present yourself to your opponent, it creates this vacuum and this void that people will jump into because it feels uncomfortable. They don't sit there and think, oh, he's stepping away. I'm gonna step forward. No, it's like, oh my god, I'm a little bit too far away. Oh my god, I'm too close. I got it. and they feel this need to move. And and, and it's that, that that need to move that creates action for me to now respond to. Got it. So when I say second attention, it's not so much, oh, he throws a jab, I respond to their jab. That's too Reduction, pedestrian. Right. Right, it's 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 more it's it's more, it's it's higher it's a higher level of thinking it's a higher level of doing things and now that I understand it but I'm able to do it and teach it it's it's, 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 well, it's the truth you know I'm an idiot but I get to I get to teach this stuff this idea of of of, of getting people to move because they want to they don't realize it that you're manipulating them uh-huh. you're making them move but they want to move. Only you know what you're doing. So you're making them move at in a way that you want them to and you're making them move at a time you want them to move. Mm-hmm. So even if I'm slower than you, Alex, on any level of measurement, I'm a slower walker, slower runner, slow puncher, slow kicker, whatever the fuck you want to count. I'm slower than Alex. But if I could get Alex to do something that he wants to do But I know when he's going to do it, and I know what he's going to do before he does. Maybe, just maybe, I can capitalize upon it and get my, quote-unquote, lucky shot in. Right. You know, maybe I shouldn't use Alex as an example. I'm talking about, you know, just a regular human being. Like, you
0: know, like... <laughs> wait, wait, what are you saying?
1: <laughs> well, I'm saying you, you're a high-level martial artist. I'm not going to compare what I could do against you. I'm talking about an, another schnook, A guy, you know... Another a, Some... Right, because well, I'm a schnook. I mean, I freely admit I'm a fucking moron. But, you know, I'm a moron that hits hard. So, like, if I, if I can get it, I will sometimes, I shouldn't say that. I've developed, through lessons of my teacher, these, this little ability to get people to do things that they want to do. They just don't realize they want to do them. Right. You kind of have to say, hey, no, no, you really want to do this. And is this, this cool way of going about it. And that's where JKD becomes this second intention art. But it's not second intention in that I'm waiting for you to throw a jab and I counter your jab. Or waiting for you to throw a kick and I counter your kick. That's, that's you know, that's kindergarten. And so that's what I mean by second intention. and uh, That's all I got to say about
0: that. All I got to say about that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Did I... uh, Switching gears here, did I tell you about that book that I picked up while I was in Hong Kong? Uh, It's about um, Hakka Kung Fu. It's like the history of uh, Hakka Kung Fu styles.
1: I saw your post on Facebook. Yeah, so... We haven't spoken about it. So
0: this is... um, this is a, a book I picked because, as, as you know, I'm I, I love I love these kind of finds. I love finding books about martial arts and rare things, and and uh, you know, reading about styles, especially stuff that I have not had the chance to kind of tackle yet. And the um, International Shu uh, Association, which is something that's basically founded by. This, uh, this rich guy in Hong Kong named Heng Chow. Um he's a martial arts enthusiast he did he's doing this project to kind of preserve uh, I guess some of the more traditional the more rare styles in Hong Kong so he's been doing motion capture with all these old styles like so he has all these sifus who are like the you know legit successors or high-level people in various styles. And some of these styles, the more obscure ones like Southern Mantis and and styles of white crane that they're kind of dying out, he, he had them do motion capture of all their forms so that he has a digital record of these Kung Fu styles so that future generations, if they wanted to see what Lee Tinloy's Sam Chin form or Sam Chin form in Mantis look like, you could actually see a digital recreation of him actually doing it, which I think is amazing, wow. right? Would be so incredible if we had such a thing with the past masters already, right? So, um, and he's doing like a, a deep dive into the research of. The history of these different styles and 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 how they influence it. Now Hakka, um, in case you don't know, Hakka was they were essentially a tribe of Chinese people uh, from um, from an area that wasn't part of Canton, not not southern China, but they came they came into southern China, and it seems, at least according to this book, that the Hakka people may have been the bridge between. Um, Fukien. Fukien is where um, the martial art of White Crane was developed. White Crane, um, Sean, is actually really what southern Shaolin is. Like the the root of all southern Shaolin martial arts, whether it's Wing Chun or Hung Gar or whatever, really comes from this one style called White Crane. And um, White Crane is kind of the seed, and then all these styles in the south developed from it. And it seems the, bu- the book theorizes that these Hakka tribes were the ones who brought these like these martial arts from Fukien into Canton so they were actually the bridge between them that's why um, there's a lot of dna of the southern styles in hakka styles and wing chun definitely has some hakka influence in it hong kun has some hakka influence in it and it's cool because it, it shows these uh, hong, uh sorry these hakka masters nowadays Who are preserving these really obscure styles like iron ox praying mantis styles that are like extremely rare but the interesting thing about the Hakka people is that they were a very or they are a very hard-working tribe of chinese and they remind me a lot more of those kind of old school japanese karate guys who did like you know this the sanchin form where they like their sensei comes in and beats the hell out of them right um, they're kind of more of that mindset than the typical Chinese. so they have the they highlight these masters, and there's this one guy. Um, I think his name is uh, Yao wan wa or something like that. He's the master of Iron Ox Praying Mantis, which I never heard before, which I always thought was kind – of like that's kind of funny name. It's like, wait, Praying Mantis is like an insect, but this insect is so badass, it's an iron ox. Iron <laughs> ox. And you got to see this guy. He's like this – he's this older guy. He's jacked. He has no eyebrows, no hair. He looks like a killer. <laughs> and he's just standing there, and he's just jacked. And this is all from – uh the the training methods of the forms because they have a lot of like high tension isometric methods and these guys right. are just crazy looking and very skillful and and the book is really really well put together the history is done in such a way that it's not political because obviously um even within the different Hakka tribes you can imagine that they're politics and this guy doesn't like that guy and blah blah blah. But the in, the information in the book is presented Factually, everything is cited. It's nothing is written for the sake, like what the history of one style isn't written in a way to denigrate or demote another style that you know is also in the landscape, which is how most Chinese martial art books are, you know, written. You know, every martial art history is written to tell you that this style is the one that's better than all the other ones, and so the book. Gave me, it kind of inspired me to perhaps do something like that for Wing Chun. Now, I am not a Wing Chun historian by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, I don't believe that a single Wing Chun historian actually exists. Okay. There are people out there who know a fair amount of Wing Chun history. Uh, there are people who know a fair amount of their specific line or lineage, or there are people who specialize in, like, the Red Boat time period and know a bunch of that stuff. But the reason why I say there are no Wing Chun historians is uh, I, I have yet to read – so there, there are three main books that have been written about the history of Wing Chun. Like, all Wing Chun books have a little piece where they write about the history, but uh, there are only a few books that really did a deep dive into the history – one of them, I don't know if you know the book, it's a small book, it's called Complete Wing Chun. It was written 20, 22 years ago. Uh, it was kind of um, uh, an effort of a number of different authors. And it was a book that was sold at Am- uh, uh, at Barnes and Nobles, like one of those books, it's called Complete sure, Wing Chun. I know the book. And um, the other book was written by Mai Sigong, Roots of Wing Chun. And uh, the third book is a book written uh, by a guy named Sifu Sergio, which is uh, um, mainly focuses on the history of one type of the history of the Siu Lin Tao form and the Erme connection. Now, the issue I have with all three of the books, and I don't have any issue with the authors. All right, so he, here's the thing that, like, when when I when I say that I have an issue with the books. Of course, in the highly politicized world of Wing Chun, where everyone gets butthurt on everything that they perceive as being a slight, um, I don't have an issue with any of the authors of any of these books. Um, My issue is that they are all Kung Fu people who are writing a book about history, but they're not applying the norms of what passes for a scholarly text on the history of any subject. You know, if we want to, if we, you wanted to write a paper, a college paper, you would have to write it to certain standards, right? And if you were studying history and you were writing a theory about a certain uh, uh, moment in history or your take on something, you would have to write it with certain standards and citations. And you would have to be very careful that you're not interjecting opinion as fact. And, in my opinion, none of the Wing Chun books, although some of them are, some of those three books I mentioned have sections that are better than others. None of them really applied proper historical referencing and/or did not avoid having a bias in a certain kind of way. And and like even in the case of my own Sigong's book, Leung Tang's book, Roots of Wing Chun is quite expansive in that it goes into many of the different lines of Wing Chun, even outside of Yip Man. Um, but you can clearly see Long Ting's bias when you read the book. And hey, I was a student of Long Ting, but I will readily admit it. When you look at on his uh, take on Yun Kei San, or you look at his take on some of the other Wing Chun styles, um, he's heavily biased towards Yip Man. All right, Understandably so, but it's still there. So you, right. you can't really say that Roots of Wing Chun, for all its expansiveness, is an accurate accounting for the history of Wing Chun. It introduces a lot of things that the other books didn't do, but it, it, has, it has a very biased take on Pang Nam and Yun K-san and other people. Now, that's not to say that some of his opinions may not be true, but it's it's like the old Dragnet TV show. It's like... Just the facts, please. You know what I mean? Like, like, uh, I I think what Wing Chun people need to do is they need to be able to present the facts of history as as well as we can. And that's already a very tenuous subject in Wing Chun, because what is fact and what is story? Right. But I think what Wing Chun authors, when they write about history, what they need to stop doing is they need to stop telling the reader what to think. They need to uh, – if, if if I were to write a book, I would like to present all the information, all the different arguments for and against a certain theory, and let the audience make up their own mind rather than me trying to guide them into the way that I would like them to do. And I think a good history book would do that, and I haven't seen any of the three do that. Leung Ting's book is highly biased towards Yip Man and obviously towards Leung Ting himself. Um the uh No,
1: no. Don't say that. The
0: complete the complete Wing Chun book is probably the most um I would say the most professional of all of them, but it right. it it is a bit like uh and and this is no knock on the authors. It reads a little bit like the reader's digest version of the history of Wing Chun. It's like it's like a little brief chapter on everybody and it it doesn't really go into anything in any kind of depth and it unfortunately um, uh, discussed some styles which have since become completely debunked as even legitimate variations of Wing Chun. And Sergio's book uh, has some interesting um, history that's come out. But again, my issue with his book is that he doesn't cite anything. Everything is just basically stuff that Chinese dudes told him, right? Right. Um, with There are no proper citations. There's no cross-referencing. There's no, how did you get from this idea to that idea? It's just, you have to kind of, you have to hold his hand and take a leap of faith while he does it. And it's also highly opinionated. And more than half of the book is actually just his bio about his s- stresses with other Wing Chun sifu. So you have to like, you have to suffer through a little bit of just his bio and his, his problem with this Sifu and that Sifu. And, well, I don't mean to say that this Sifu is, uh, you know, not a good guy, but let me tell you a story about why he's not a good guy. You know what I mean? And and it's kind of like and, and it's a whole book of that. And then finally, at the last half, he gives a very biased and very undocumented and unsourced Take on the history, which may or may not be true, but you would never know from the way he writes it. So, I've decided that I think I want to write a book about the history of Wing Chun, but uh, I'll be the first to admit I'm not a historian. But what I want to do is I want to get a couple people who really know what they're talking about in the different phases of Wing Chun history, tell the facts as best as we can. Tell people when we absolutely don't know what's true and what's not true, but tell them that we don't know that. And also when it comes to controversial things like, for example, did Leung Bic exist? We, We can tell both sides of the argument. All right, the people who don't believe Lang Bik existed, they don't believe he existed because of this, 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 and this, the, these facts. And the people who do believe Lang Bik existed believe because of this, 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 and this. You can tell both sides and you can let the reader decide which one they want to go to. And I think that that type of book is what's missing in Wing Chun because Wing Chun is so biased. It's so tribal. It's so lineage based, even when people, in my opinion, like Sergio pretends to have an open mind about how he's writing. But when you read it, it's it's brutally opinionated and it's brutally biased. And and you would you would really have to be only one of his followers to pretend that it was some kind of open thing. But to be fair, you would say the same thing about Leung Tang's book. The only one you wouldn't say that about is complete Wing Chun. It's just Complete Wing Chun is not a deep dive, in my opinion. So uh, I think I think the time for this kind of book is out there now. I do know, and it has been pointed out, there's there's this other book, The Creation of Wing Chun, by Ben Judkins, and um, I, I I know that he is uh, I believe he's some professor, some academic from Columbia. He wrote a book, and it it, it goes very deep into the. Um, so see, I guess, it's the societal t- like what was going on during the Qing and Ming dynasty that created the um, the backdrop for Wing Chun to develop. And I know from people who've read the book. That they just say it's kind of very academic in like the socioeconomic issues of China at that time and somehow tries to make it about Wing Chun here and there. My issue with it now, mind you, I haven't read it yet. I will read it. So I'll have a more fair assessment of it. My issue with it is I've read other stuff that Ben has done. And while it's very academic, um, He just strikes me as somebody who hasn't actually been to China or been to Hong Kong. He doesn't speak Chinese. He doesn't know the culture the way me or other people do. And it just reads like if I went and researched guitar playing and then wrote a book about guitar playing, but I don't actually play guitar, I could I could give you a lot of impressive facts that I find online. I could tell you a lot of things about Jimi Hendrix's method because I read about it. But if I don't actually play guitar, there right. there is always going to be a bit of emptiness and hollowness to the way i write no matter how many so-called facts are present and i i read ben's uh, article about the history of the wing chun knives so that's my exposure to how he writes and it read the same way it's like it read like a university student doing a thesis on the wing chun knives that university student however does not practice wing chun and has never had the knives in his hands and, and, right. and so and while that may not be the case, that's how it comes off. So I, I want to write a book that's a balance between me being an enthusiast and and an expert that wants to do a deep dive, but also write it in a way where it's not me pushing my uh, opinion on it, because quite frankly, I teach Wing Chun as a martial art. How it got here historically, I don't know. And I have no it, – it, it doesn't serve me to tell people anything that would favor Yip Man or Long Ting or anything like that over another lineage. Because at the end of the day, you're either a good instructor with a good martial art or you're not. And, and using history to prop up what you teach seems very shallow. Because if that were the case, anybody who learned the original Gracie Jiu-Jitsu – would never need to improve their jujitsu after that because they have the most pure line of jujitsu, And so it would be the same argument if you applied it to boxing. I learned the Jack Dempsey style of boxing, which was state-of-the-art in the 1920s, and I learned it from Jack Dempsey. There's no reason why you would need to modernize the boxing because I learned it from Jack Dempsey. And you fast-forward 80 years later, and it's like, no, boxing has evolved. So I, I, right. I, I don't feel that history should be used to... Um, Prop up your line. Your prop to, the the greatness of your history doesn't make what you teach better than anybody else. But history is still a topic that we need to address, and I think it can be done a lot better. So, I'm um, in the beginning stages. Let, I'll just put it this way: I'm in the beginning stages of thinking about whether I want to do it or not. I have not decided to actually do it. I'm thinking about it. I'm talking to some people. And uh, if I do it, I want it to be something really special. And this Hakka book I got, it's called Hakka, 30 years of, uh, 300 years of Hakka Kung Fu history, inspired me to do it because it's just such a professional and academic read. So
1: That sounds freaking awesome, yeah. dude. I'm looking forward to awesome. it.
0: Awesome. And that's all I'm going to say about that.
1: <laughs> Outstanding. Well, this was a fun episode, man. I'm glad that we had this as our 50th. And um, I hope everybody goes out and... Uh, Gets the Wing Chun Illustrated magazine. It's freaking awesome this month.
0: Yes, yeah, it's really good. And uh, in the next issue, I wrote a scathing article about respect and the abuse of respect by Sifus. Really? I have to say... Um, And, and, you know, one of the reasons I write for Wing Chun Illustrated is because I don't actually think I'm a very good writer. I I wrote a... Oh, I agree. Thank you. Uh, That makes two of us. I wrote a very technical book about Siyun Imtao. People like how I wrote the book, but I'm not satisfied with me as a writer. So part of the reason why I decided to write a column for Wing Chun Illustrated is because I just want to get better at writing. So this forces me every other month to actually get better at the craft of writing and putting my ideas to paper. And so it's my next article – uh, is about the abuse of respect. And i uh, it, it's because of a certain incident that happened. I actually talked about it on the podcast a couple uh, episodes ago. And um, I think it's my best article, probably only because it's my newest one and my writing style is slowly getting better. Um, but I would love for you guys to check that out. As always, check out Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Uh, they're one of our main sponsors. And, uh, and yeah, uh, please, please support them anytime you can. All right, guys, this was fun. And we will see you next week. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. Please help us get the word out there by sharing this and other episodes on your favorite social media platforms. If you're enjoying the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, there are many ways in which you can support it. Go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out how you can help your favorite Kung Fu podcast. We are currently using Patreon to automate great benefits to those who support the podcast. As a supporter of the Dudes, you'll get early access to episodes as well as a number of other benefits based on your donation level. This includes in-depth topic lectures and even monthly live video conferences with the Dudes. Again, go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out more about that. As always, you can help support us in small ways as well. Give us a like at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page and share links to episodes. If Twitter's your preferred social media outlet, you can follow the Dudes of Kung Fu there as well. Both Big Sean Madigan and yours truly are on Twitter too. Dudes of Kung Fu is now also on Instagram, so tag it along with the hashtag Dudes of Kung Fu whenever you post something related to the podcast. A great way to support the Dudes is to rate and review it on either the iTunes or Android app stores. The written reviews are immensely more helpful than just giving us a five-star rating. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please write us at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page. Please understand that neither Sean nor I can guarantee a response, but we will consider any serious suggestions. And finally, I ask that you help spread an open dialogue with other practitioners of martial arts. Chinese Kung Fu in particular has long since suffered from caustic political discourse, which can only change with you. Remember, the person you wholeheartedly disagree with doesn't love martial arts any less than you do. Take care, and thank you for supporting the Dudes of Kung Fu!